Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. To get the crime writers on after show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, how can the internet be used as a tool for pain and corruption? Let us count the ways. We'll be talking about the Netflix series, Web of Make-Believe, Death, Lies, and the Internet. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Response downloading. Hello, Rebecca. That's very attractive, Kevin. (laughs) Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of Dead on Deadline, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara Bricker. Meow, 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 meow. <laughs> oh, goodness. That was my Lady Henrietta. <laughs> All right. Henrietta Pussycat <laughs> from Mr. Rogers. Yes. yes. Very well played. Yes. This is referring to a, a pre-taping conversation, listeners. Just trust us. <laughs> and finally, our captain of all things cynical, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, my friend, who I spoke to earlier today on the telephone, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello again, Rebecca. It's very exciting when I have double Toby Day. It's very exciting for me. So, Kevin, um, this is Monday's episode of Crime Writers On. What is coming up on Thursday's podcast? On Thursday, we're going to talk about the new season of Smokescreen. It's called Puppy Kingpin. Yeah, it's about a puppy who wears a monocle and carries a cane and oversees like Atlantic City. No, like, you're a... thinking of Puppy Monopoly. Oh, Puppy Boardwalk Empire. That's right. <laughs> okay, so yeah. we're, that's what we're covering on Thursday. So, Kevin, before we start the show, can I just tell you something real quick? Sure. I got to tell my favorite story about you last night at a work event. Okay. Back when you were in radio, a thing that like nobody believes is that when you were worked in radio news. You just used to make up the traffic reports on the air. And I got to tell that story. And it's my favorite story to tell about you because people can't believe it. Oh, you mean in the days before there was satellites and computers and it cost $70 to make a phone call on your yes. cell phone? Yes. Yeah. Well, I'd say you, we'd call the cops and listen to the scanner. And then if we didn't hear anything, we figured it's all good. And then we would just talk about stuff and we'd 
say, yeah, you know, right now, 293, a little slow going past exit two, yeah. and you've got to back up on the Everett Turnpike <laughs> in Nashua construction there between exits four and six. You just 101, 114, got a light cycle delay, solar slowdown as you... <laughs> Hit the intersection there, and then you're good. And then you, then I would throw it to Frankie Fox down at Metro Traffic, telling us what it's oh, like God. coming out of Boston. Yeah. <laughs> so Frankie Fox is still there. Is, she, is Frankie still there? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. She comes on New England Cable News. So the first time Kevin ever told me that he used to literally just make up the traffic report. Uh, so I, I got to tell this story last night, and there was somebody there who knew Kevin from his radio days who was able to confirm the story. And he was like, yeah, we used to just make it up. And if Kevin said that there was traffic and Somebody was at the spot and there wasn't traffic, they would just think they were lucky. And so there was no problem with that. And then if someone was there and there was traffic and Kevin says there wasn't, they didn't have a car phone. So what were they going to do? Complain? There's no social media. <laughs> Who were they going to yell at? So I got it wrong. But the first time Kevin ever told me this story, when he was like, yeah, we just used to make up the traffic report. I was like, I had first started in public radio. It was an radio. educated guess. I right. wasn't making it up. But I was first in public radio and I was super snobby because public radio people are snobs. Still and are. I was like, Kevin, I can't believe it. You used, how did you get away with it? How did you, how did you know? Like, how could you just make up the traffic report? And Kevin was like, what? Was I going to go up in my helicopter from WZID mm. in New Hampshire? Anyway, I love telling that story about you. because we, we did have an airplane. Did I tell you about the time it crashed? No, yeah, we did for, not. No, I, I, honest to God. <laughs> Metro Traffic, which is the, the group out of Boston, Metro does weather and traffic, and they feed like all the different radio stations. You buy a subscription; they got twelve people, and right, so that's why everybody's on everybody's thing. So, what we did, we're in New Hampshire, but we got a subscription for Boston because a lot of folks would drive home from Boston and come up, you know, to New Hampshire. So they would cover the second half of the traffic report, and so we had the so guy. After you made it up. Yeah. Well, then, <laughs> then they would throw it to a guy who was actually in an airplane flying over. Route 93 and 128 and all the traffic coming north, right? And his name was Chris. And so he was, I think, I can't remember. I think it was Chris Colkeen was his name on the rest of the stations. We named him Captain Chris <laughs> in the, you know, ZID cop or whatever the hell it was. It was an airplane. And one day the engine stalled and the pilot and Chris just looked at each other and it's dead silence. And so they ended up crash landing in a parking lot, big parking lot. By crash landing, you know, they came in and they, you know, didn't- Emergency landing. Emergency landing, yeah. Like at the, you ran out of space and hit some trees and stuff like that, but they were all okay. And that's when Chris's wife had him retire. <laughs> <laughs> but all of a sudden we're like, he's on the air at five, at 420 and at 450, he's not there. So huh. now we turn it over to Captain Chris. <laughs> it's like nothing. It sounds like he wasn't actually Captain Chris if he wasn't piloting the No, plane. he was not actually a captain. That, no. was, that was a misnomer. So you lied about There's the so traffic. There's so many lies in the traffic report. <laughs> <laughs> it was a web of lies. <laughs> it was a web of make-believe, Captain. Traffic was a web of make-believe. That's a good segue. All mm. right. Well, it sounds like it's a good time to start our review. So, Kevin, should I go ahead and drop that first clip? Please do. <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and drop that. So, leading off. We are in an informational crisis that is destroying us. The internet just went crazy. You have to question your own sense of reality. The ubiquity of the web means people can be whomever they want, whenever they want. 
That cloak of anonymity makes it easy to steal identities, spread hate speech, and make threats against the unsuspecting. So finally, I gave her my phone and I said, Mom, I can't do this. I want to die, and I'm begging you to let me kill myself. But beyond the criminal acts, the nefarious use of the Internet opens the doors for more pernicious problems, like the erosion of truth or the overreach of a government attempting to strike back. They left him there on the ground until all of it was over with. So she had to walk over his body and look at him and see him and then get handcuffed outside. The Netflix documentary series Web of Make-Believe, Death, Lies, and the Internet shows a series of digitally-based crimes like swatting, sextortion, hate speech, and fraud. It also pivots to the ripple effects of these acts like misogyny, intrusions of civil liberties, police accountability, and the destabilization of our society. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Web of Make Believe. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to get our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Additional note, I am the host of the Netflix podcast, You Can't Make This Up, and I recently interviewed the director of Web of Make Believe. However, that has not influenced my review of this program. Lar Bricker, question for you. Were you surprised to see that there was an episode of this show that originated approximately 12 miles from my home over there in Belmont, New Hampshire, with this extortion case? I was. I'm like, oh, my God. When they're like Belmont. And I'm like, wait, that can't be the Belmont. And I'm like, oh, it is. Yeah, Belmont, New Hampshire. I mean, I used to go through there when I was working at the public defender's office. I had like cases out there, um, interviews I did out there. But I think that was an interesting starting point for something that ends up to be such a sophisticated uh, scam to think that, you know, here we are in little little New Hampshire and this is something that, you know, continues to snowball into a huge situation. But I think what I loved about it was that we have this like, by the way, really attractive like detective woman out in Belmont who I was like, she always looked really good. I was like, I liked her hair. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was totally sexist, but I did like her hair. It's okay. You're um, a woman. It's allowed. I'm a woman. I can say it. No, I was appreciating her. But what I appreciated was like, here she is. She's obviously at a small police department and she's up against something that is much bigger than she's had the training and the experience for in the role that she's in. But she continues on her own to investigate this case, to try to find ways to get new leads in this case, to get new technology to help with the case. And I just, I thought that that was out of the whole thing. That was the part that I, I really appreciated about that. But it also, I think for me, sort of as, you know, starting out in this whole like, you know, web of lies, web of make-believe, internet crimes, you know, it kind of sets up how and why these crimes happen because the people that are that internet, that computer savvy are one step ahead of, in a lot of cases, the technology and the training that they're having in some of the smaller police departments. So Kevin, the stories in this series were really all over the map. Like they didn't really have a continuous thread other than the fact that they all you know, were sort of related to technology yeah, general, and the yeah, internet. Yeah. So like this one that took place in our local municipality, I mean, really Belmont literally is like 12 miles away, was that sextortion case. But, you know, that story, I think maybe a little bit less so than the others, took a turn into sort of a larger societal issue. But that was what the series was trying to do. Each episode sort of tried to take that left turn and explore something bigger. Yeah. Do you think that that worked in the series generally? Generally speaking, yeah, I thought it was I thought that was really great because, you know, you would 
sort of be in the narrative of the story, like, say, for example, the swatting story. And they've kind of played out narratively, like, what happens in the crime and where it goes. And then all of a sudden, the story continues, but down a different path, which is really the ripple effects, right? Because this, what well, did you consider this going on here? In the swatting story, it ends up being about police accountability. Because for certain, you know, you could see a mile away that, you know, something very bad was going to happen. It's dangerous when you do swatting. It's, it's designed to be disorienting and dangerous for everybody involved. So, you know, eventually someone's going to get shot. But when that actually does happen, you realize that the police accountability portion of this story is just atrocious. But it's also very typical. It's very difficult to get information on these incidents. Kansas has possibly the weakest open records law in the country. They basically hope that you don't find out and that the statute of limitations expires so that they don't have to pay out on a case. Toby, what did you think about the swatting story? Because we very often see the swatting stories. We see the part where the police bust in on somebody who's gaming, right? We don't usually see it sort of from the point of view of somebody who's doing it for whatever reason they're doing it. It's like, in this case, it's like, I want to be anonymous, but I also want everyone to know what I'm doing, which is like the weirdness of these anonymous Internet dudes. It's like I am the hacker who wants to be not get in trouble and sort of have my identity be here. But I also want to be the show off who can do something really big and brash and want everyone to know that it's me, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I guess I didn't really understand. And maybe he's sort of unique, but I didn't realize that there were people who are like specialized in swatting like i was sort of under the impression that it was just something that people would get pissed off and then they would call 911 and and send the swat team somewhere i didn't realize that there was somebody who you would like get in touch with and give an address to you know i kind of felt this way about a lot of stuff in this it's like how is swatting really like a prevalent societal problem they don't really talk about how often it happens is it does it happen 10 times a year does it happen every weekend i i don't know what's going on i mean i think they're smart like kevin said there's a little bit about you know how do you apportion the blame when something goes wrong in a swatting thing how much is it it's a guy who's swatting how much of it was a kid who was like taunting him with the idea that he was going to get swatted and then how much of it is the cop who pulls the trigger um, I think a lot of it was the cop who pulls the trigger in that particular instance, but it is true right. he wouldn't have been there in the first place if the kid hadn't given him the address, right? Right. And and when they do a little follow-up, they find out that, you know, he is a little cop. trigger happy. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, it's sort of typical of a lot of stuff we've seen where the officer gets nothing and then the family who's trying to get some kind of justice for the deceased is sort of dismissed. So, you know... It was fine. Yeah. Laura, have you heard about swatting since you have a son who I'm sure is as much of a gamer, if not more so than my own son is? Well, I've heard about swatting more in the sense of just having a kid who's in high school Mm. and anytime there is like, they call it like a fake bomb threat and they evacuate the school and then later they'll be like, well, we traced it to somebody that wasn't in the school. So Mm. that's like where I would hear about it was sort of in the context of you know, there was sort of like, I felt like a lot of copycat sort of things going on. And that's where that would come up. But um, no, I I haven't heard about it from my kid. He doesn't tell me those kind of things. (laughs) Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. 
It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. All right, so Kevin, here we are. I think it's time for you to do like our dogs do and do your business. I really wish you would stop making the connection like that. I'm sorry. I think it's adorable. <laughs> I think it's adorable. Time for you to do your business. All I can picture is Kevin like lifting his leg in his Winnie the Pooh. Like I just, I have so oh, many things okay. going on All right, right now. We're just stopping this right now. <laughs> This is not the internet anybody wants to see. Okay? <laughs> do your business, Kevin. Do your business. All right. Business section. It's the business section coming up on the Crime Writers on After Show. A couple of things. We're going to get quick reactions to the Georgia Supreme Court overturning the conviction of Justin Ross Harris. You remember that was the baby in the card case from Breakdown a couple of years ago. Yep. Rebecca, in anticipation of Thursday's show about Puppy Kingpin, Rebecca wants to share some of her dog farm experiences. Dog farm? Yeah. <laughs> dog cult experiences. Dog cult experiences. Yes. And we have a bit of an update on the true crime scandal behind the scenes involving... One a famous true crime podcaster. F- I don't. It's going to be a quick update because I think news is happening so fast. I'll just tell you what's happening at the time of this taping. Okay. All right. Sounds like it's, it's going to be, be a jam packed, jam packed after crime show. writers on after show. Also coming up soon on Patreon, we have the latest. Leave it to Bricker and Laura Bricker. Lean into that microphone. Tell us what you're going to be talking about. We are going to be talking about the latest visit of some people to Exeter associated with Crime Writers on. And something that happened with Rebecca's mother during that visit. <laughs> oh. oh, no, that cannot be good. Yeah, my mom always getting into trouble, for I sure. I mean, I just whipped out my microphone as soon as I saw Marianne, and I was like, I need to know what's happening. So, yeah. It was wild. Rebecca's mom makes everybody whip it out. It was uh, wild. <laughs> so you get all that on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And uh, also, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. Go to crimewriterson.com. Just give us your email address. And every Thursday, we'll send you a missive telling you what's happening behind the scenes and giving you previews of what's coming up. And thus ends. And thus ends. Thank you. Thus ends the business section. The business section. I'm going to fade that music out right now. So there are some episodes in the series that definitely sort of pair together by theme. We have an episode here about Seth Rich, his death and the conspiracy theory that followed. Now, I thought this episode was really interesting because it's timely insofar as I think things have gotten a lot worse since the Rich case. But the Rich case was definitely kind of a canary in the coal mine for how bad things can get quickly. Toby, how did you feel watching that today? 
because that was like a sort of pre QAnon <laughs> uh, situation. Not pre. Well, not pre, but also it was the sort of beginning of that wave, right? And it was like seeing how quickly things happen now. It can happen in two days now, but it happened sort of over a period of weeks and months then. But then he actually has the characters involved in the conspiracy theory in the documentary. So I'm just curious what your feelings and like what it evoke for you as you were watching that. So one of the things about watching this for me is that I'd listened to a podcast that was actually quite long about this whole same thing that went into quite a bit more detail. So I, I knew the story beforehand and in sort of greater detail than they go in here. What's a little bit striking, I think, that might not happen now is that Seth Rich's parents were willing to accept this help from people who weren't actually there to help them, right? They saw a story that they could exploit to make, you know, sort of a conspiratorial political point. So they offered the riches, you know, this opportunity to, to do investigation or to have money for an investigation or whatever. But then the whole time, their whole thing was, we're going to push forward this conspiracy theory about the DNC or perhaps Hillary Clinton herself ordering a hit on this guy who leaked the DNC emails. And then you even have Julian Assange sort of like being coy about it because he's trying to protect the Russians who actually did it. I, I thought this was probably the strongest of the episodes. And I think particularly having Jack Berkman on. Oh, Jesus. Who, like, how often is it that you get a guy who's sort of that much of a sort of unadulterated villain be willing to spend that much time in front of the camera and there's no way he can feel like he's going to come out well on i mean maybe he's deluded but you know he's (laughs) like he's a venomous presence in this whole thing so i don't i have no idea why he did this he doesn't come off well and in some ways like i you know he got shot in the ass he hit me in each butt cheek and twice in the leg and then uh, the dog bullet bounced and hit the dog in the paw. And uh, so I'm running down with the baby. The baby's bleeding. I'm bleeding. He then tries to run me over. I threw the dog as I was running because I wanted to save the baby. I thought I was dead. Of all the people in all these different things, like he's a guy who kind of, I believe, like left the strongest impression just because he was such a freaking prick. Well, yeah, especially when you compare him to the presence of David Falkenflik, the incredible media reporter in this whole episode. He's like, David Falkenflik is one of my favorite journalists. Um, somebody I actually know as well, who's also like just an incredibly nice, wonderful person. He's in the thing as this like steadying, calm, super smart, very, very savvy political media and media reporter sort of telling you exactly how it landed. And then you get Berkman like telling his part of the story. Kevin, what did you think of that guy? Oh my God, he was crazy. But he was so <laughs> he was so charming in a way. And we talk about Brett Johnson later on in the Stingray episodes. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that Berkman just being so... It just was one of the highlights because it was so bad. Unabashed. So, unabashed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anybody's like, yeah, I threw the dog. <laughs> the, 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 the baby. The, the baby and, oh, mother of God. Really. <laughs> Laura, does it make you feel better about being a cat person when you uh, talk to a guy who calls his dog the baby and then talks, tells a long story about being shot in the ass because, you know, he had to throw his dog into the melee? 
Oh, yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I was totally not staging a play with my cats tonight and <laughs> anything and nothing like that. When the new Chewy Box comes every month and we get new brown paper, it's a whole exciting time here <laughs> in Catland at the Bricker House. What? No, that was not a transition into a, a Chewy it was, No, it wasn't. We don't have them. No, no. But uh, they do have good uh, brown paper for cats. Well, that episode was actually, I think, a very interesting setup into the alt-right episode. And the alt-right episode, for me, was the strongest episode of the series. I did like the Seth Richards episode a lot. The alt-right episode was the strongest one for me because it was the one I've been thinking about the most since I watched it. We have a narrator in the episode, a woman who goes by Samantha, who tells us about her journey into sort of the depths of the world of Nazis and I found myself being very conflicted about whether or not we can call her brave or somebody who's a former Nazi who we can't forgive. And one of the things that I've been thinking about ever since watching that episode is what she basically outlines is her experience sort of being pulled into this very cult-like atmosphere. And she talks about all the things she did and she talks about her moment of revelation and waking up and her journey kind of coming out. And I found myself thinking, if we are ever going to reconcile with any of these people who did these things, is the key to it acknowledging that some of them were victims of being pulled into a cult? I don't know if that's true or not, because the bottom line is she was still a racist, hanging out with racists, an alt-right white supremacy group. But here she is trying to tell her story and saying, like, I was fucking wrong and I don't know what I was doing. I was like in a in a haze when I did it. But then there was this also this moment where she was like, I thought I was one of the good alt-right people. And I'm like, what is a good alt-right person, Samantha? Like the whole thing for me, I felt very conflicted as I was watching it. But then I also know from my own research afterwards that these women and these groups are also extremely exploited. They're sort of pulled in for reasons. They get used for propaganda. I just have extremely mixed feelings about her, about the whole thing. But I thought the episode was very strong because of that. I sort of was like balancing between hating her and thinking that she was very brave. I don't know, Laura, what did you think watching her tell this story? Yeah, it's it's a little bit like um, the also Sam in I Am Not a Monster, the Josh Baker reported podcast where we hear about a woman who starts kind of like following her man. And then the next thing you know, she's like over there in a training camp doing horrible things. And that woman I felt was a little more deceptive than this Samantha. I mean, this Samantha was honest. But I, I, you know, it did feel like the telling and the way that she was being set up was in a way that really we were supposed to feel sort of sympathetic to her for what had happened to her. But at the same time, she was recruiting people and uh, these people were like organizing marches like Charlottesville and, you know, somebody died. I guess what it goes to is the power of propaganda, online organizing. And like you said, it is it is a little bit, Rebecca, like being sort of into this cult behavior and I do think it's interesting, we did see in some of these where we didn't hear directly from some of the people that were at the heart of what happened. And I appreciated this one that we did have somebody that was there. So you could kind of follow the path of how she did go down that road. But I felt the same way. I felt a little bit conflicted of like, yeah, it's great that she's talking now, but like, what the fuck? I kind of wavered back and forth as I was watching this. And I, I came away not really sure how I felt, but also feeling it was enlightening. It was horrific. And it's scary because I feel like that isn't the last of what we're going to see of that type of behavior. 
yeah, I think we've seen this before in things like Motive, where we've had you know former Nazis sort of reject that lifestyle and come try to come to terms with their past, and it can be kind of hard to judge the level of their contrition, you know, whether they're sincere about it or is there anything they actually can do to sort of make amends. And I feel like Samantha does feel remorse, but just as she said, like you know, the neckties whitewash the alt right. So did she just having the pretty girl there to recruit for the cause and bring other women in? You know, she was like that suit and tie where she has, you know, made Nazis look normal. And so it does become kind of hard to root for her or to feel compassion for her. But she's got to go on her own journey. And it looks like she's trying to do things, you know, to sort of make amends to the world and to herself. But that's always hard to kind of like, well, what do I feel about this person? Hmm. So this was the only episode that I thought the title Web of Make-Believe made any sense for, because my sense of her was that, you know, it was kind of make-believe. It was online. They were having meetings, parties. There was, you know, I, she, the, the big Sig Heil thing, which, you know, is a huge, crazy step. I like jumped up and like Sig Heil... I just went with it. I, I completely lost myself in that energy. So that is the first time I see Kyle. But I think once she saw the actual violence that was at the heart of it, she then, you know, has this boyfriend who's also violent. But when she realizes the violence at the center of it and becomes real rather than something she's doing online or going to parties with people who are espousing these views, which she can convince herself that she's into... So that was kind of my takeaway was that as long as it wasn't like too, she wasn't facing the consequences of what all this ideology would end up being. She was more into it. And as soon as she saw that, I think she like, I would assume most people would take a, take a step back and say, okay, this is not what I had sort of bargained for. Mm. You know, this, this is what I got involved in this for, which is not to say what she got involved with it for is in any way okay, I think she was self-deluded as to what the end end result was. Hmm. So, Kevin, the final two episodes of the series are about this con man, uh, Daniel Ringmaiden, yeah. who basically did this you know, series of crimes that sort of escalated where he was like learning small scams and he got bigger and bigger and bigger scams. The next thing you know, he's like basically Walter White, a piling this huge amount of money in a storage locker, just like stealing people's tax money, taking money out of ATMs, and just doing all sorts of like escalating cash accumulating stuff but his teacher and his original mentor is this other con guy who gets a tremendous amount of camera time who isn't really the center of the story but who we, we hear an awful lot from is this dude brett johnson now i know that you love this dude he kind of reminded me of like a character from legend of cocaine island where he's just <laughs> right larry he's just kind of like a little bigger than life he, he's so proud of himself He's, he's like too proud to be contrite for like what he did, his crimes. He finds his stories too funny because they are. And he's just too charming for us to like really hate him. He's, he spins a good yarn. He kind of turns the lens on himself. I mean, the story about how he ripped off somebody who wanted one of those blue elephant beanie babies. Like he just couldn't stop slapping his knee on that. Send her this messed up little stuffed animal. Immediately get a phone call. This is not what I ordered. My response was, lady, you ordered a blue elephant. I sent you a blue-ish elephant. That was the first 
online crime that I committed right there. So I feel like in a way, because it's about Daniel, that you don't really need to have Brett in the story. Yeah. But it's like, man, it'd be a waste to not have him in the story. It doesn't matter why you haven't, you know, an ACLU lawyer in it or whatever. They just had to, like, in the second part, just bring him back in just for a second, just so you remember that he was there. Kevin, one other thing I wanted to ask you was, watching the Daniel Rigmaiden story, like, he was stealing money from the IRS using, like, fake tax returns, right? Yeah, yeah. You were scammed in that way. You were scammed uh, in that way. I was. Well, I wasn't dead. Somebody filed a tax return under your Social Security number, and they took your alleged money from a return that they filed in your name. And now for every year, for the rest of our lives, we have to go through a whole freaking thing to be able to file our joint tax returns. And it is a whole thing. And you have to have a whole credit lock on your whole thing yeah. because somebody did this using your identity. Yeah. I mean, the scam is a little different here. Again, he was using- Not that different. Well, he was using dead people, right? He was, you know, it was somebody- So he's ripping Don't off someone- yourself. Well, you know, he's using the death records. <laughs> Don't jinx <So>. yourself. <laughs> Yeah, Knock so. on wood, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> Not dead yet. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I was a, a victim of identity theft. And so, yeah, it's it's troubling. It's problematic. I didn't lose any money. Yeah. But the government lost some money. Yeah. But ultimately, Toby, the story is about the government chasing this guy and ultimately the government potentially committing a crime in order to catch this guy. Uh, that is sort of the big twist here. Right. And because Daniel is smart. He's the one who figures it out because he's in prison with nothing else to do. And he sees this one word, you know, in one of the evidentiary pieces of paper, Stingray. And he's like, what is that? And he ends up figuring it out. And although there is a case against him, he ends up, you know, sort of getting out because they don't really want to pursue him so that he can then like expose whatever this technology was that they were using to survey him. So what do you think of that as just sort of like the takeaway here that the good guys we're being bad guys. I mean, I don't find that particularly surprising, but what do you think of that as sort of like the larger story here? I mean, the whole thing starts with him, I feel like almost being entrapped, right? Because what's his face, who Kevin was just talking about, is like walking him through how to do this scam as part of his deal with the FBI. He's like, oh, this guy looks like he might be interested and he kind of lays it out for him and then Daniel picks it up and runs with it. I couldn't figure out why this was too episodes long. It just seemed like we spent a lot of time on stuff that in the end wasn't all that important. You don't like car chases? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> so I thought what, what was clever is A, figuring out how it was done. It's like, how did they pinpoint where I was? It couldn't have been the way they say it was. He hears the Stingray thing, does some investigation, figures out what it is. And then he's got sort of the wherewithal to realize that the government's not going to want to you know, put out their sources and methods in front of a jury so that this is his, his ticket out. Yeah, I mean, so it's kind of interesting, I guess. Again, this whole thing, you got kind of a charming scammer. You got a somewhat less charming but more effective scammer. And, you know, in the end, you've got this twist. But it was, you know, it's freaking two hours mm. of watching stuff that wasn't really that interesting to get to it. Mm. Yep. I concur, Toby. Thanks. <laughs> I found that about this entire series, quite honestly. Yeah. Um, it was just, I, I felt like a lot of it was too long and we had like weird reenactments spliced with some of the real people, some of the not real people. 
and I, I thought it was just me. And then thankfully I saw like there was a thread in our uh, Facebook discussion group with other people who were having the same feeling. And I was like, okay, good, good. It's not just me. I just, I feel like it would have been more effective if it was like 30 minute episodes, boom, boom, boom. Cause it's like a lot of it started to be like very similar in some of these cases. And you're just like, okay, yeah, we got it. They know how to like work the internet and the police can't figure it out. Or, you know, they're in their mother's basement doing something and they're not going to get caught yet. But I liked this one because this one to me was, I think back to the stingray one, just the fact that, you know, you have this guy who is able to sit there and read his pages and pages of discovery in jail and has this guy who comes in and does like Google searches on paper. And then he like searches what he wants him to search. And he like goes back out. And this like very sort of cumbersome method of research and reviewing the discovery is able to find that one piece of information that is going to help his case. I thought that was impressive because I think to me that sort of illustrates what the authorities are up against, because obviously this guy was very good at what he was doing, so much so that when it gets time to defend himself, I mean, even though he was not successful because the judge didn't agree with him at that point, it was clear watching this, this is a very, in some cases, evenly matched situation. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out the Netflix series, Web of Make-Believe, Death, Lies, and the Internet? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this docuseries? Uh, well, I kind of just hinted at this. I'm going to go thumbs sideways. Um, I didn't hate this. I didn't love this. But I felt like it was too long. I feel like we tried to have a theme that connected all the episodes. It was, to me, sort of you could tie them all together. But I just felt like a lot of this sort of lost me because it just, you know, what was it, eight episodes? No, it was only six episodes. It seemed like eight because it was so long. So what I would say is there are some interesting cases in here. So I would say, like, look at an episode that looks like an interesting topic for you and watch that one. I I wouldn't say go watch all six episodes because I didn't find that to be like an engaging six episodes. But there were episodes within that that were stronger than the others that were ones that I would recommend watching. Toya Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Web of Make Believe on Netflix? Yeah, I'm kind of wrestling with it, too. I thought the the Seth Rich episode was one that could have probably been two episodes, and there was just a lot more to the story that they didn't get to. I quite honestly, I found myself that I was a little, I was sort of bored a lot of the time in this, which is not a good sign. There's a couple of good episodes, Seth Rich and the, uh, the one about Identity Europa. Some of the others are okay. But I think I'm a thumbs down. I mean, it's not it's not a terrible thumbs down, 
but I just can't imagine actually recommending it to somebody to sit down and spend six hours watching. Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I'm going thumbs up. I was really intrigued by all of the stories, and I thought the storytelling was good. I was not expecting sort of the next level discussion about the ripple effects of, you know, the top tier crime about, you know, what happens after that or what that means for something else. I thought that was all put together very well, and uh, I enjoyed the series. Thumbs up. So I'm giving it a thumbs up for the three stories that I really enjoyed, and that was the Seth Rich story, the alt-right story, and I did actually enjoy the final story, but I agree that it could have been one episode. I actually think thematically those three stories fit really well together and could have been a very, very tight series. I think the other two stories actually were interesting, but felt like they were part of a different series to me. So in that sense, like I would say like that, that's the one thing sort of dinging my thumbs up like a little bit diagonally, but for the parts that I liked, I liked enough that I'm going to give it a thumbs up and I thought they were really well done. And I just, you know, maybe it's because my Falcon flick love is just like so, so strong. And the Seth Rich one was so interesting to me. So yeah, I'm giving a thumbs up for the series overall. Um, and I, I think that I got enough out of it and was able to sort of get enough of sort of the larger themes around it. But yeah, I, the alt-right one, I got to be honest with you, I've been thinking about it so much and I've been thinking thinking about sort of like the larger takeaways for me and sort of that bigger discussion of like, you know, can we ever come together again? And my my feelings before watching this have always been like, nope, I don't think so. <laughs> and I'm not sure I feel differently, but at least it's gotten me thinking about like potentially like if somebody can talk about this in the way that the, the subject in that talked about it, like, is there a conversation to be had? And maybe that's really kind of my big takeaway here for the, for the series as a whole. So I think that's really what's influencing my review and that's incredibly thoughtful. So yeah, I'm going to give a thumbs up to this series overall. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of, crime of the, week. the week. Attention, Canadian gourmands. The hit frozen snack of the summer is, wait for it, Ketchup-flavored popsicles. Mm. French's is offering the treat in Toronto and Vancouver, describing it as tasting, quote, refreshingly savory and sweet. Many pops are made with fruit, so why not tomatoes, vinegar, sugar, and onion powder? French's has already hit it big with a food mashup. Ketchup potato chips are a bestseller in the Great White North. And why not? They're made with the fanciest Dijon ketchups. Mmm, Dijon ketchups. We're not making a run for the border to get our hands on ketchup-flavored popsicles, but if sucking on a frozen hot dog is your thing, this is the snack for you. So, panel, what is the next unlikely hit summer food mashup? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Well, I'm going to just continue this theme, and I'm going for a pickle-flavored hamburger bun mm. because I do like a little relish or pickle on my burger, but I also like to take my grilled cheese and dip it in a little pickle juice, and this would just make that a lot easier because the pickle flavor would be built right in. Oh, that's not a bad idea. Toy Ball, what do you think? What is the next unlikely hit summer food mashup? This is a terrible idea. Um <laughs> Rebecca, when I was touring the Highlands, we came upon a small town that was serving apparently quite famous soft serve that was flavored with this expensive whiskey from this distillery that was nearby, which was pretty good. But to Americanize it, I would have to say a beer milkshake. Oh, mm. what about you, Kevin? Uh, mashed potato ice cream. 
Yeah, I think that that's something that you eat anyway, right? Not cold. Yeah. <laughs> On a cone. All right. Well, if you would like to submit your suggestions for an unlikely hit summer food mashup and ask Laura Bricker, what is it about pickle juice that she likes on her grilled cheese sandwiches? Laura Bricker, how can they find you on Twitter to do that? They can find me at Laura Bricker. And Toya Ball folks want to reach out to you to get more pictures from your Scottish Highlands adventure. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball and H. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want your favorite mashed potato recipe, how can they find you? Also good with ketchup. I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. Actually, what you should do to get his favorite mashed potato recipe is tweet to me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you to join our incredible community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Just go to our regular Facebook page, hit join the group, answer a couple questions. We will let you in if you're not a jerk. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You get the Crime Writers On after show right now. Plus, Married With Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbs. Our line editor is the astute Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement, where we keep all of our blue-ish beanie babies. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. I was just texting with Ronald. That Westworld is coming back this Sunday? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. I didn't I fucking on... know that. I'm like, is it a secret? Is it a really bad season? Is that why I don't know anything about it? Yeah. It was on Good Morning America this week. I saw it. Yeah, but doesn't it seem like we would have heard about it before today? Uh, I heard about so it much like in the marketing. Three I days did ago. see it, yeah. Um, Evan Rachel Wood's character is called, like, it's not called... Um, Dolores? It's not. It's, she's got a new name. Clitoris. Dolores. Mulva. Mulva, exactly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.